considered one of the world's leading experts in lithium, I welcome Joe Lowry, founder of Global Lithium to the Coastal Front today. Known as Mr. Lithium, Joe has been involved in supplying raw materials of, to the lithium ion battery space since the industry began in Japan over two decades ago. Joe has lived the lithium experience in the United States, Japan and China. Today he provides advisory services for lithium producers, purchasers, investors and governments across five continents and he's the host of the Global Lithium Podcast which has downloads in over 130 countries. You also have about 15,000 followers on Twitter. I hope all you folks are as charged up as I am for having this conversation with Joe. We had to put that little plug in there. Plug. Thanks for being on the show today, Joe. Let's get started. I'm a dad. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Got all these dad jokes now. I'm a dad with three, three young kids. So, Joe, let's start talking about yourself. A lot of our listeners aren't going to necessarily know who you are, although you're well-respected, well-known within the lithium space. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I grew up in western New York State about an hour south of Buffalo or two and a half hours south of Toronto, I guess. Um, I went to college in Oklahoma. I went to grad school in Georgia. I started to work for an oil company after graduate school. And when the, the oil company uh, was sold off in pieces, I moved into the gold industry with a company called FMC Gold, which was owned by FMC Corporation. They also had a lithium company and that's where I ended up in 1990. Wow. And I never left. Wow. Well, I never left lithium. I left uh, the company 10 years ago and started Global Lithium. But 1990s, I mean, this is way before the days of electric car concept of electric cars. Maybe, I mean, it was I'm, before the lithium ion battery. There was, was no, the, there was no lithium ion battery in 1990. So what was, in 1990, what was lithium used for? The biggest uses in 1990 would have been aluminum smelting. And okay. Canada was a big user. There yeah. was actually a BC uh, operation of Alcan at Kitimet. And then a couple in Quebec. Glass was a big usage. And Greece has always been a large consumer of lithium. Oh, wow. And is that still the case today? I mean, is aluminum still used, uh, lithium still used? Very limited because the technology for smelting improved so much that the efficacy lithium gave it. Uh, economically, it, it just wasn't a big thing anymore. Yeah. So uh, the other trivia is that the 7 and 7-up is based on lithium. It, is yes, it? The 7, yes. Really? Yeah. What does the 7 refer to? Is that Lithium. The, the, in the periodic table? Yeah, 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 yeah. Really? Go look at lithium. It's got a seven and a three. So, wow. Okay. So the other big trivia is in yellow post-it notes, there's lithium in two places. The fiber reactive dye, the yellow dye, and the tacky adhesive. Wow. Okay. You this can't is... get this trivia anywhere else. <laughs> no, you cannot. Well, this is really cool. So 1990, you get into the lithium space. Not even the concept of lithium ion batteries are not even around. Fast forward 30 years later, it's 2022, here we are, and uh, you are now considered the, one of the world experts in this space. You get consulted by many governments and companies around the world. Uh, you travel around the world on speaking around lithium. That's what we're going to get into today. So, so Joe, to help our listeners, uh, before we get dive into the supply-demand metrics, many of us know lithium-ion batteries, of course, are being used in things like electric cars. I mean, Elon Musk has been... Uh, the pioneer behind that industry. Our, our, mo our smartphones like these have lithium ion. 
is that the two main uses of lithium ion or, or lithium, excuse me, or is there other major uses today uh, in 2022? Last year, battery was about 70 to 75% of the lithium market. Okay. In 2016, it was 43% of the market. Oh, and wow. In 1990, it was zero. So <laughs> you will see it eclipse 90% probably in 2025. Okay. And so if we see um, that world of lithium being used predominantly for batteries, and we go into that battery world, what percentage of that is being used for cars versus phones versus other types of batteries? You know, it's interesting because you asked John Evans the same question about six months ago. I listened to that episode this morning, and it just changes every year. Okay. Uh, last year, it was about 50% of the battery demand was, was EVs. And then okay. you have energy storage systems, you have consumer electronics, but EVs are the thing now because if you take the amount of, if you take a Tesla with a 100 kilowatt hour battery, there's about 80 kilograms of what we call lithium carbonate equivalent. And if there's a few grams in an iPhone. Yeah. It'd almost be interesting to run the math on how many iPhones. Yes, will, the iPhone you, equivalent. Yeah, yeah iPhone equivalent. Like how many iPhones do you need to have made to make the same amount that it will be in a battery of a, a Model 3 Tesla? You, you could get that on Google in probably 30 seconds. Maybe you can uh, look that up, Lewis <laughs> uh, or Amanda. Okay, so we know that the industry is pivoting very quickly towards you know electric vehicles. That's where majority of the demand is coming from. Now, and that's what the main usage is. Now, can you give us a perspective of what that demand supply equation looks like today? The lithium market went into shortage uh, again about 2020. It had gone into a shortage situation at the end of 2015. But at that time, EV penetration was globally was almost 1%. And so it was corrected by five mines coming online in Western Australia okay. that weren't a response to it. Those were all planned before there was a shortage. So the narrative came out that lithium is just another commodity. And if there's a shortage, there'll be an immediate supply response. Oh. And that is probably the worst possible thinking that could have happened among the Goldman Sachs of the world. Okay. Because that's not what's happening today. Okay. So just to make sure I'm clear, there was a sh uh, lithium shortage occurring in 2015, about seven years ago. Then it got corrected temporarily just because of pure circumstance. These five Australian-based mines went online and started producing. But it wasn't out of, uh, you know... A, a Those were all planned before all there planned. was a tight market. And, the, the and shortage... when did that sh shortage pivot back to... When did it go back from a surplus to a shortage again, probably? It, they said 2020? 2018, it started to... You saw the price start to go down. Price, to put it in perspective, battery quality material was before the shortage was selling for around five thousand to six thousand a metric ton, and the price went just about to thirty, a little less than thirty on that cycle. Uh, so it was significant. Wow. Uh, but again, there wasn't that much EV penetration. The 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 real issue with the planning for lithium is that the lithium companies were never big believers in EVs. Okay. I mean, the Western lithium companies. And that's yeah. one of the reasons China would always build capacity on the come. And the Western companies that are more quarterly earnings focused tend to just hang back and said, well, you know, if we see it, 
we will come. Not oh, any, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Chinese have had a better view, a long term on this uh, up to this point than some of the Western based uh, lithium producers. Yeah. It, well, really, it's a small pond. Yeah, I sure it, it is. It, yeah. Yes. We had what was called the big three. Uh, when I entered, well, when I entered the industry, there was the big two, and then uh, another company called SQM came, and there was a big three lithium companies, and the Chinese and the Russians had legacy programs from their nuclear program, because that was the genesis of the lithium industry, was get the trigger for the hydrogen bomb. Oh, so, really? Another trivia well, fact. That's, a, that's an interesting trivia one. So the places in which we can find major lithium production today is China, Australia, in Argentina, is that what from a resource perspective, it's not China. China's a converter. Actually, oh, I see. I would love to debunk that commonly held myth that China dominates lithium. They're the most dependent okay. co country out there. They do have the most processing, okay. but their lithium assets are very low quality and, and quite small. Okay. They get most of their uh, feedstock for conversion from Western Australia right now. Okay. So it's a, there's kind of two, two axes, the Western Australia to China, and then the South America also to the other battery producing countries, Japan, Korea, and hopefully in the next five years, North America and Europe, but uh, that's to be determined. Okay. So within South America, I know Argentina is a big player in the space. Is there any other countries within South Chile America? Chile is actually still the biggest player, but the difference, Chile has one huge asset that two companies, Albemarle and SQM, are you know processors there. Okay. And Argentina has an abundance of various Solars. They just don't have one that's as good as the Atacama. But you know, fast forward six to seven years, you'll probably have more production out of Argentina in total than than what happens in Chile. Okay. So aside from Argentina, Chile, and then Western Australia, are there any other places in the world that have an abundance of, of lithium? Canada's got a significant amount of lithium. It just hasn't been developed. If you okay. look at hard rock. And in rock, high concentration? Or it's, it's, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's, it, it's basically in the hard rock section because there's, there's spodumene, hard rock, and there's brine. Okay. Later on, Lithium Americas will develop the Thacker Pass, which is called sedimentary. It's just there's no commercial sedimentary at the time. In Quebec and Ontario, there are many assets that could be developed. It's just, like I said, people weren't willing to put the money in. And now lithium prices being what they are, all those assets that were considered marginal two or three years ago look good for the foreseeable future. And I think you'll see capital flow. Plus COVID highlighted the uh, problem of uh, China-centric battery supply chains. Right. <laughs> and I think there's, there's a huge move towards regionalizations of battery supply chains. You've heard the Biden administration talk about it. The EU's talking about it. But neither one of these two areas really are uh, bullish on mining. Yes. So there, yeah, there's, we're gonna there's get a into conundrum. That. There is a conundrum. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So just to gain a highlight for our listeners, major resource place, places that have these resources in place and are producing today are China, uh, sorry, are, are Chile and Argentina, Western Australia. It's used namely for and grow, the, growest, the fastest growing market are EVs. 
Um, let's talk about the price of lithium so that we can let the listeners understand how much it's moved from 1990 to say 2015 to today. Where are we at? When I started in uh, 1990, and, and because I'm an American and because we're still we're on the pound system, yeah. we sold it by the pound. So it yeah. was like $1.50 a pound. Okay. And uh, so put it to 330 a kg if okay. you want to do the math yeah. on that. It's gone up and down over the years, depending on supply and demand dynamics, but it never, it never hit 10,000 until after 2000. Okay. And since 2000, it's gone up. It's we're talking about up, per pound? We're, no, we're, I'm, I'm, I moved into metrics. When, yeah. I, when I moved to Japan, I turned, okay. I turned metric. But Does the industry reference, like, like gold's referenced in ounces? Uh, it's metric you know, ton. It's, okay, that's, metric that's ton. That's pretty okay. much the universal or kilogram. Uh, okay. Yeah, we since the United States isn't a big producer anymore, you know, we lost our mojo with the talking <laughs> in pounds. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it, the lingua franca of the lithium industry is it's metric tons. It's metric tons and U.S. dollars. Okay. So two thousand. What are we looking at roughly per metric ton? Two thousand was actually a low point. It would have been. Um, SQM had entered the market in the late 90s and driven the price down by half. Wow. So it was just getting back up to about 2,000 a metric ton. So okay. it was recovering. And then it, it went back into the higher single digits, mostly between 2000 and 2010. It would have hit 5,000 and 7,000. And then there was a, sh a shortage uh, in 2006. You know, most people only like two cycles because most people haven't cared about lithium for more than five years. But if you, <laughs> if you spent your life in it, in, in 2006, there was a shortage. Price went from 2000 to 8000 which is a, you know, a very significant percentage change. Yeah. But uh, since, since 2010, it had pretty well stayed in the mid-single digits. And then we had the, the big pop in end of 2015 into 2016, 17. And now, and, and where, where did the price go there? Like from it, it went to about thirty thousand a ton. Wow! This cycle, it's hit. So eight. it was at eight or nine thousand dollars up until that point. And all of a sudden, boom! It just jumps to thirty. Yeah, it, within months. Within months, I, I literally had contracts with the same people that refused to sign up for a year, and they they had a sixty five hundred dollar contract and a twenty eight thousand six hundred fifty dollar contract. Wow. That was for the a Greece company in Thailand. Wow. And uh, they were bitter, but uh, there's nothing I could do. <laughs> so 2015, was that, that, ha that big price spike happened because of this shortage. So it was both a combination of increased demand and, and not a lot of new It supply. was an artificially created shortage at the beginning. Okay. There was only one big lithium mine from the, from the Hard Rock side. That was Greenbushes in, in Western Australia. Okay. The two owners, Abelmarl and Tanchi, Tanchi's a Chinese company, decided that they were no longer going to sell to converters in China. They were only going to sell to themselves. Okay. And they would take it all. And then they were, the, the thought was that if the converters wanted to stay in the game, they would just have to become toller, toll converters for them. And hmm. they that caused a, a huge uproar about the same time because of incentives the Chinese government were putting into the EV side. Serendipitously, there, there was a spike in demand, so that's that's why the, the, the shortage lasted as long as it did. It and then okay. it was 
at the time there was one mine on there was one mine that had operated in western australia called mount catlin that had shut down because of economics they reopened mount marion reopened and a few others and the five i referenced earlier and so then you went into a oversupply of the precursor that goes to China, which brought the cost curve down for all the converters. Okay. So the price went down. Okay. So, and that happened around 2008, between that, 2015 that, that, that started in the first mine, that Mount Catlin came back on, I believe in 2016. And then the other mines came on in 18. That's why the, that's why the price stayed relatively high into okay. 2018. Okay. And it began to drop. Okay. So the price drops in 2018. Did it? What did COVID do to, to lithium prices? Did it? Did, did, did the price plummet or? No, and that was well. The irony was that I expected it to. You know, when I, my forecast was, lithium prices will spike in the fall of 2021. Of course, when COVID started, we had no idea it was going to go on for two years. Yeah. What actually happened, even with two years of COVID, the EU's incentives for EV purchases. We didn't have a, a drop in the in the market. I, I would have expected during COVID lithium demand would have dropped for the first time since the 90s, and it didn't. It, it basically held firm and then continued its growth in, in 21. So it was that was a real shocker okay. that the EV sales grew right through COVID and we all know how it was hard to get a car, yeah. <laughs> any kind of car, whether ICE now. or EV. Yeah. yeah. Uh, during COVID and uh, at the beginning of COVID, yeah, the wait for a Model 3 in the United States was about three weeks and now it's up to a year or more. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about that as well. So it's mid-June 2022. Where's the price of lithium now? Price of lithium, It's this is really interesting because the best barometer for price isn't looking at what the spot price in China is. It's taken a company like SQM that just reports lithium revenues and lithium volumes. You just have to divide and do the math. In the in the fourth quarter of 2021, they were at about almost $15. First quarter of this year, when they reported, it was like $38 and it's- Per kilo. Per kilo. Yeah. Yeah, I'll bounce between- Yeah, so what's that kilos. metric tons, just to keep a good comparison, what is that metric tons? Well, tons? it's- what it's they they got about thirty eight thousand a metric ton and now their new contracts is are over fifty thousand. Wow! But if you look at what the spot price in China is, it's it's touched eighty thousand. Wow! So yes, it's so this 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 these lithium prices are just continue to go up. Yeah, I mean it's Argentina uh, was tired of their producers transfer pricing uh, out and not getting the the full value. So last. Well, I think it was earlier this month. They pegged the price now at fifty-three dollars a kilo, fifty-three thousand a ton. And if you have to prove it wasn't that high, if you don't want to pay based on that value. So let me just run the math here. So fifty-five thousand, roughly up to eighty thousand dollars, depending on which. That's a big change in, in two years. In two years. It, yeah, in twenty twenty, yeah. you could the spot price in China was below. It's at one point below forty-five percent increase. Below four thousand. This is the, the the real comparison is four thousand to eighty thousand. Yeah, that's the if you want to frame it by the two endpoints. Yeah, um, I know that John when we sat with him to to to, to wrap this part up. So I do want to jump into the conversation about um, mining versus you know zero emission vehicles okay. that kind of thing. 
Um, but to kind of tie this together, so we've seen a price go from uh, pennies on the dollar at today's level when you started dealing with lithium in 1990 to hitting a, a high point of $30,000 per metric ton in 2015. Well, it, it, it was probably mid sixteen, but it, oh. it took it took six months for it to get get that high. But oh, that's okay. a pretty that's a pretty big increase in a six month period. Yeah, and then then COVID hits two thousand eighteen, and from two thousand eighteen to now, we've seen this price go up by another forty percent. Yeah, the price the spot price in China started rising in the fourth quarter of twenty twenty. So I missed I missed it by a year. Right, but during COVID, it it just didn't seem logical that you would have this massive rise in any prices uh, that were commodity-like. Now, I'm a firm believer that, uh, you know, the world generally operates under a simple supply-demand model. And you either have uh, rising supply and, and maybe not rising demand and prices go down, or you have rising demand. In this case, you've got rising demand and rising supply. But I think it seems to me that the, the pace at which the rising demand for lithium is outpacing the pace of, of rising supply. Is that a fair statement? Well, yeah, let's deconstruct that. It takes two years for Tesla to build a gigafactory, roughly. It takes less time to build a, to build a cathode plant to make the lithium active material, but it takes up to 10 years to build the lithium. And if you're already short and your market's gonna 10X between 2020, 300,000 tons of demand, if we could supply it, there'd be 3 million tons in demand, probably. And Abelmarle says more than that. Some others say more than that. I don't think we'll ever know because it's, the lithium industry is not going to be able to catch up that fast. Wow. Well, that's amazing. So it doesn't really matter whether Elon I say, Musk announces a new gigafactory is being built because if there's no supply... There's... I believe in the next five to seven years, supply defines demand. Doesn't okay. you can you can look at whatever doesn't matter what that, the demand is. What whatever they predict for gigawatt hours installed gigawatt hours. If there's not lithium, yeah, you can't make the cells. So how much how much uh, lithium was produced? New lithium was produced last year, last twelve months. When you say new lithium, SQM produced about forty thousand tons more through an expansion that was late. Okay. Abelmarle's expansions have all been late. That's the problem. The the experts, the old lithium companies have all, all the supply surprises have been negative. All the demand surprises have been positive. Right. That, that's really the crux of the issue. So there wasn't a lot of new demand. Argentina didn't, or new supply. Argentina didn't have any new supply last year. Lithium America's Cuchari project will be the first significant new supply in Argentina uh, since uh, all chems or, or what was or a Cobra came online several years ago. The Western Australian mines were shut in, some of them. So now they're restarting. Yeah. Uh, but they don't have a new mine coming on until late this year. And it's a small one. Okay. And it's not in Western Australia. It's actually up by Darwin in the Northern Territories. So what you'll see is you'll see all the old... Uh, you had some consolidation. Uh, Pilbara bought Altura. They're side by side, but it's it's there aren't five new mines coming on in Australia anytime soon. So now everybody's looking at Africa, and there's some big lithium assets in Africa. That was an, 
Zimbabwe or what was Rhodesia at the time was one of the first lithium sources for ore. Hmm. But you've got projects in Mali where you got a civil war going on. Yeah. You got it in the Congo. And yeah. one of the Those other issues we should talk about is ESG because all these <laughs> automakers want all their stuff to be clean. And yeah, sure the Congo is really probably not yeah. your best bet for an ESG gold star. <laughs> so to, to, to wrap up this segment, with respect to supply demand, just to simplify, I got two questions to keep this real okay, simple, I'll dumb it down it, for a, it all of us. What is the supply demand uh, ratio or deficiency look like today? And what do you model, what do your models look like going out say five years from now, just to give in some simple numbers? My models, I have lithium supply in 27 at 1.3 million tons okay i have demand closer to two million other people have it higher i don't spend too much time focusing on it when the gap's that big people okay. have people a lot of banks have pro projected bigger gaps or higher demand the difference i have with some of the people who say price is going to crash like goldman sachs is they believe there's going to be several thousand hundred thousand tons of another hard rock source called lapidolite that's gonna magically come on in the next two years. Well, the lapidolite's been in China since time immemorial. All the Chinese companies went outside of China to get the lithium in Western Australia or South America. So if those resources were that good, yeah. why weren't why they developed? They yes, and I, I have a presentation now where I show a picture of I went up to one of those mines, 3,500 meters, a yak beat our truck up the road. <laughs> and it's, yeah. It, That's it, a really good point for, I mean, here in Vancouver, of course, many of us are familiar with the mining industry, but I mean, it's one thing to have a great resource, but if you don't have proper infrastructure, to extract it and move it to market doesn't really mean much. Well, that's that's the story of the Congo. The sure there's a, one big resource there that a, comp, a company called AVZ has been trying to develop since 2016. You know they don't have a road to the coast. There's just some some minor things like that. And now the Chinese are going and challenging the Western Australia company that owns it. So we have you know you got geopolitics coming into the fore yeah. now because. The problem China has is that now in Western Australia, Albemarle Mineral Resources are building conversion capacity. So to the extent that they build conversion capacity in Western Australia, that material doesn't go to China anymore. So right. China's got a double whammy, you know, surging demand and then less feedstock from their old friends. Wow. And just to make sure we're clear again, to dumb this down, this is like the equivalent of having oil refineries in your backyard as opposed to shipping raw oil offshore to yeah. be yeah, processed exactly. Okay. Exactly. So to summarize this uh, conversation around the supply demand, um, you've seen massive increase in, in the price because of this huge increase in demand without enough, uh, without the supply side keeping pace to the point where I loved your quote earlier, which is in the next three to four years, the supply will dictate the demand. Basically, it doesn't really, you, the, the, the differential between the two is so wide, as you pointed yeah. out, that it doesn't really even matter at this point. It's just like- It's whatever. an academic exercise. Right, okay. So we're gonna go back to that and how that 
is going to impact society and this vision of you know zero carbon and all of us driving on electric cars before we get there let's talk about this wonderful conversation this dichotomy between zero emissions in your own backyard but somewhere else you're producing this is what i asked john evans i mean i don't know how many carbon emissions there are or carbons produced to to mine lithium but you gotta mine it and that's the, the challenge that guys like Joe Biden struggle with, right? They don't, they don't really speak to that. Exactly. What are your thoughts? Well, my, my thoughts are that uh, there is no such thing as green energy. There's only greener energy, right? And if you want to have the energy transition people talk about, you have to have mining. All an iPhone is, is a collection of mine materials. That's Absolutely. It. And you know you can protest mining, but most people protesting mining are going up there in a four-wheel drive that's not electric, and they're filming their themselves or doing selfies with an iPhone. It's like, so we have you know we that's have the PDAC scene every year. <laughs> yeah, we have a real issue, and it's uh, the other point is, is if if you look at the standards for mining, if you mine in Canada or in the United States. People are going to be held to account, or Australia for, for well, no, Australia is fine. I mean, Australia's got a mining culture. Yeah, I, there's no, there's no big issue except for the fact that yes, you do have trucks going, big trucks, and you have a heavy equipment, and you have calciners, and you can have calciners running on a natural gas, or you can have calciners running on coal. Sure, and you know it's it's all a trade off. But you can't expect everything to be perfect in five years. Yeah. I think the energy transition is a 40-year effort. I started off in the oil industry. You're going to be using oil for a long, long time. So you ought to let people drill for it, especially in a, in a country that has higher environmental standards. I think it's very, very hypocritical of the United States government to say, you know, not in my backyard, because that's effectively what you're saying and now yeah. we're now biden's going over to saudi arabia to try to yeah. talk them out of some oil and it's also talking to venezuela they're probably the dirtiest oil producers in the world absolutely now this is such a great point you know it's interesting i remember back when talisman energy if you remember that name uh they had a project in one of these uh african nations i don't remember which one but it was uh they were getting protests constantly by environmentalists and this is going back 20 years ago over the fact that they were, you know, extracting oil from a nation where there was like, you know, uh, lots of human rights abuses of some type. Not that their company was practicing it. And so what did Talisman eventually do? They just had enough and they sold their company to a Chinese state-run oil company. And do you know how many protesters have been protesting that state-run oil company since then? Zero. Yes. Because there's no, it's, a, it's, a va it's yeah. an information vacuum now. And so I think that's one, I think you brought up a really good point, Joe, and that's one of the reasons why I love having mining, mining executives on here is because mining is an essential part of our, of our life. If we don't have mining, we don't have any of the things that we have in front of us. And why not embrace the mining in jurisdictions like United States and Canada or Australia, where we know at least there's some standards in place versus letting the Chinese mine the products that we're gonna buy from them and mine it out of Africa. He had John Evans on, and if you look at the Lithium America's management team, and I know all these guys, they're, they're all committed to doing it in as 
as a responsible manner as possible. And I would say that's true broadly across the industry. And if you go to Africa and you don't have standards, the world, pollution doesn't respect national borders. No, it does not. So mm. it's a very hypocritical thing to just push it off somewhere else because if you look at the whole net zero agenda, it, does, it doesn't matter where it's coming from as long as it's, it's coming. Exactly. Well, I see two big issues here when you listen to the, the, uh, the, the government propaganda around this, so I call it. Because here in Canada, of course, we have Justin Trudeau, and he's not too far off Joe Biden. They're probably good buddies. And they, they're preaching this whole idea of like, you know, net carbon zero, 2030, 2050. But then they don't want to admit to the challenges that are like the impossibility of getting there. Uh, yeah, let's yeah. talk about carbon credits for a minute. Okay, so yeah. if you, if there's a forest, that, that forest is already absorbing the carbon. Yeah. So if you pay to offset your pollution, you're doing nothing except for greenwashing the carbon. Yeah. If you're not out there planting new trees and that's how you're, the world's not any better off because you paid somebody and there have been many cases where the same tree is sold to three different guys who use it as a carbon credit <laughs> and, the, and the math, uh, you know, it's just a math exercise yeah. that doesn't really mean any, doesn't make the planet any cleaner. Okay, let's, let's talk about a question I had for John, and I wonder if you can help answer this. I go to buy a Model 3 Tesla okay. with this massive lithium-ion battery that had to get mined in Western Australia or Chile or Argentina. Is the carbon footprint, lifelong carbon footprint of that Model 3 higher or lower than if I go and buy a Honda Civic? That's in what they call ICE, uh, in, internal combustion engine. I can't speak to the particular Model Three, but I had or, a, or somewhat. Like, I had a podcast guest on who's now in recycling. He started off by developing a, a lithium project in Australia. He's a very smart guy. He says the on average, and he has numbers to back it up. On average, an EV is three and a half years in a deficit carbon wise when you buy it. So. In, a, in, a, in the average case scenario, it will take you three and a half years of ownership before you're even. Okay. Just because of the carbon involved in mining the materials to make the battery. Versus an internal combustion yes, engine. Yes, versus okay. an ICE. Okay. So that's... So three years. Yeah. Going back to your point of pollution doesn't respect borders. So if you're a true environmentalist, environmentalist at the core, you got to know that if you go and buy yourself a new... Uh, EV, you're actually doing worse for the planet in your first three years, and you're maybe breaking even after three yeah, years. Yeah, no, and you will, you, you'll, you'll probably break even, but then where's your power coming from? Exactly. Such a good point. Yeah. So that's another question I have, which is I've made the argument that EVs make a lot of sense in certain jurisdictions in the world where you have nuclear power or hydro. Right. So for example, as you know, be here in British Columbia, Manitoba, and Quebec are three provinces where we generate most of our power from hydroelectric uh, yeah. uh, power. By contrast, if you look at the very far Atlantic coast, say for example, the province of Nova Scotia, something like 60 to 70% of their electric power still comes from burning coal. So even though you're plugging in your EV, I mean, are you really actually doing much for the environment? Any thoughts on that comment? 
I, I live less than 10 kilometers as the crow flies from a nuke. And I sleep like a baby at night. Yeah. And I see the plume from the steam in the morning. Uh, I, I think nuclear energy has been abused. I think it's to, to put it into the lens of Three Mile Island is to say, you know, that was 79. Yeah. A lot of things have happened technology-wise yeah. in, in the last several decades. And I think we should be looking at hard at nuclear. Yeah. Uh, that, that's really my response is that people get locked in to an ideology that just nuclear is bad. Yeah. And you could do so many things now because you have small nukes. You could build a nuclear plant that ran a desalination plant, and you could solve a lot of the water problems in the Atacama, and you could produce a lot more lithium, things like that. Things that maybe in the next 10 years, when people realize how screwed they are in terms of quickly making the energy transition, people will start to to modify their both their thinking and then later their behavior. Yeah, but I think that's 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 critical to what we're doing is to do some things differently and not just say, well, not in my backyard. Yeah, sure. Well, it seems to me I've often thought that you know a combination of both nuclear generated power, electric electricity, sorry, electricity generated through nuclear right. power, combined with uh, a you know a growing inv inventory of electric vehicles could be a really big solution for long-term you know air pollution and carbon emissions is that a fair statement yeah I, I, I believe that I mean it's I think you just made the point we started talking about whether it was coal or what the energy source yeah, hydro, was to recharge yeah. you know and, and then that three and a half year deficit takes a lot longer in, in certain scenarios uh, yeah. to, to overcome yeah. So now, what about uh, ESG and and lithium and mining? I mean, how how is it possible? I mean, I personally you mentioned the word greenwashing, which I love. By the way, I feel like ESG is just a modern version of greenwashing. It seems like every single organization out there has an ESG policy now. So if you're a miner mining lithium in Africa, if that's the new frontier for lithium mining, I think it is for China. For China, yeah. yeah. I mean, but they don't care about ESG. Well, I, I mean, everybody, there's some public lithium companies in China and their sustainability reports look as good as anybody's. <laughs> it's the, the thing you have to do is peel the onion on the details. And I think right now, most of what passes as ESG is PR. And, and I, I have no yeah. issue with the with the concept, but I think ESG investing is uh, right now just kind of the flavor of the month. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So as we mentioned, we talked about earlier one of the issues with uh, with this lithium shortfall or shortage is uh, even if you embrace this idea of being a good you know, environmental citizen and going out and buying your fresh new EV, you can't get them for it. Let me just give you some context here for you to an idea here in Vancouver. So we have our, our local equivalent of your governor. We have our yeah. premier, John Horgan, who has come out on Twitter and he said, well, you know, we're, we're the British Columbia is one of the highest adopted. We have one of the highest adoption rates of EVs in anywhere in North America. 
out of all the states in the U.S., all the provinces in Canada, and we're we're leading the way. And and that's so, a pretty low bar, by the way. Is he to compare himself with Norway? Norway. Okay, fair enough. Which is, by the way, a, a major uh, oil producer. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Norwegians are, are yeah. yeah. Well, that's so, the it's the uh, guilt over the the sovereign fund. Exactly. So we have this thing called uh, Clean BC Go Electric program, and it's an incentive program, as you mentioned earlier. Although it's interesting, is they have to keep it, <laughs> they have to keep it just so you you can't get on any vehicle. It's only on low priced EVs. Okay, not on. Where so do you, you get a low priced EV? These exactly. Days? <laughs> so they've had to adjust this a couple times now on what cars qualify because it's like 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 our company you bought a model three two years ago and and got this six thousand dollar tax credit we and we bought the model three with like not nothing like it was like the cheapest for, because any add-on we had even if it was just like a software add-on it brought the price up too high and yeah. we wouldn't have get this incentive so so we we bought it and then we added the software oh, you, stuff you later. retrofitted we retrofitted it but now, not one Model 3, not one Tesla qualifies for these government grants. So, so we went on the BC Provincial website and we looked at, they have a list of all the vehicles that supposedly qualify. And I looked at these. So for example, Volkswagen has their e-Golf. So we, we called the dealerships. Yeah. They're not making it anymore. Like they've actually halted production indefinitely. ID4 we, on there? Yeah, it's, 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 the ID4 is on there. We asked them delivery time, 18 months earliest. We went to the Toyota, what is this, the, the BZ4X, two years. We looked at the, the 4.2 electric by Smart. They're not making them anymore. We looked at Polster, $55,000 car. They said, maybe we can get one for you in eight months. We looked at Nissan, the Nissan Leaf, $50,000 car. And they, what is this here? They have no, no sight lines on, on when they're going to be able to get these in, in stock. Mini has, I'll just last two. Mini has the Cooper SE, $50,000 for a Mini. And you gotta pay for that in after-tax dollars here in Vancouver, we pay a lot of taxes. That one is, uh, they, have, they had one in stock that was used with 3,000 kilometers on it. And then finally the Mazda MX-30 supposedly has the shortest turnaround time. If you wanna spend $56,000, you got a four month turnover. And we also know some of the higher end dealers that didn't have incentives like the Taycan, for example, at Porsche, they've apparently stopped production for the entire year and they'll restart production next year. You cannot get yourself a Porsche Taycan for at least a year and a half. It's a good thing you got yours early. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, and let, if, me, let me yeah. tell you about okay, one, so one other yeah. problem yeah. that people don't consider and why they'll consider the shortage will last longer than people think. And that's every time they build a new battery factory, usually as they're ramping up, 30% rejects for months. So that process is all lithium that's delayed into a useful battery. It has to go, oh, to, interesting. A, has to, go to a recycler. There's losses when you recycle it. And that's pretty much been true across the board with new battery factories. And when you look at these maps of all the build out in Europe, with guys who have never done it before, like a, really, yes. So, so you're telling me that a new battery factory is manufactured, created, built by? Or is it most of the car companies that build them themselves, or they? Is it outside? No, it's it, mostly. If you look at the map of planned North American battery factories, it's it's usually there's an Asian hand in it. And okay. GM may have a partnership with LG or SK Innovation with Ford. 
But at the beginning, about 30% of the batteries produced are not... It's up to 30%. It can, okay. it, it, well, there, there have been a, there's been a case in Europe where it was 50% for a few months. <laughs> so this is... Um, and it's, it's the same thing when you start up a lithium mine. You don't make good... You don't press the button and make great product. The ramp yeah. up can take a year. Wow. And in that time, you produce some good material, produce a lot of bad material. So all of these analysts that... Pr- predict these oversupply scenarios usually just take the preliminary feasibility study and stick it in a spreadsheet and declare victory right and that's why you know that's been my message for the last five years look look at the guys who have been doing it for 50 years they struggle with expansions and they're brownfield expansions right when you do a greenfield it's tougher wow so here's my theory okay because you're right, I've got a Taycan. I was lucky enough to get one. Uh, my wife has the uh, Model X, and I'm actually one of the few people that's getting delivery of the Ford F-150 Lightning here in Vancouver, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Been built. There's only about 15 coming to the city for the entire year, supposedly. Um, what's interesting is the dealership is charging me an extra $10,000 to be able to buy it. And I said, well, what's this line item? It doesn't even have a line. It's just like no, the it's total. Just, and then there's an yeah. extra 10 grand. And he's like, well, that's our profit for basically giving you a chance to buy this early. Um, so I've, I've drank the Kool-Aid on, on buying EVs because I, lo- I love them. But here's my theory. If the price has gone, as you said, up to as high as $80,000 per metric ton for lithium, if I'm a car company, and this is why I think Volkswagen stopped making their e-Golf, if I'm a car, and they, Volkswagen owns Porsche, right? right? So if I'm a car company and I got to put in a similar size battery into an e-Golf that I can try and sell for $50,000, or I can take the same, roughly same size of battery, put it in a Taycan, and instead of wrapping that battery in a $50,000 build uh, car, I can wrap it in a $250,000 car. My margins go through the roof. So my theory, and I'd love to have you comment on this, Joe, my theory is in the next five years, electric cars will be available to only people who can afford very expensive vehicles. And the idea of having mass produced, you know, cars for the average American, average Canadian is not even gonna exist. It's gonna be Lamborghini, it's gonna be Bugatti, it's gonna be Porsche, it's gonna be Ferrari. They're gonna come up with their one and only hot, you know, e-vehicle and they're going to charge through the roof. What are your thoughts? I wouldn't go the Bugatti route. I would say that it's going to become a social issue because you're going to have EVs are only for the rich until there's enough mined battery materials and enough battery investment to uh, make a $35,000 EV. Because right now... China. I mean, aren't, aren't they already uh, a vehicle for the rich? I mean, like when I look well, around, I, no, I, I think, I, but I, I think it's gonna. I think you're gonna see the rhetoric has been that the working guy was is a later adopter, but you know, Mary Barra, GM is gonna make these great cars. Well, newsflash, she had to recall 100 percent of her her first product. Which one was that? The, the they they had to the Volt, I guess it was. Okay. Every every one of them got yeah called back. Yeah. Oh, the Volt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. So, and then she's going to challenge Tesla by mid-decade. But in the fourth quarter of last year, they sold 26 EVs. <laughs> so I, it's, it's, it's an interesting 
thing, and I think you're right. I'm I'm going on a little bit of a tangent of your your main point. I believe that when the Biden administration starts talking about the working guy, and the working guy sees that. Oh, the Model Three really isn't thirty-five thousand dollars. I think it's maybe it's seventy-two thousand dollars now. I can't afford that. Yeah. And then it's going to be well. Do we write stimulus checks for EVs? <laughs> well, I mean, look look at the the way the politics have gone because you're yeah. going to say oh, it's not fair that you know a, a mother raising single mother raising two kids can't have an electric vehicle. Yeah. So what are you going to do for her? Yeah. And usually, it's true, the, the current administration's answer is, well, just print some print some money, and everybody ought to have an EV. But the problem is, it's it's going on allocation. Yeah. And, and you're right. The car makers are trying to make a profit, and yeah. they're going to put it in the highest end vehicle that they can. Unless, are you going to start having a policy that says car makers now have to make so many X dollar? Then you're going to have okay, oh, I, it's got a if Joe 20, Biden's 20 kilowatt to, hour battery. If Joe York. Biden's listening to this podcast, you might have just gave him a great idea. <laughs> I think I'd be very careful. Hopefully he's not listening. <laughs> well, he, he wouldn't understand. He wouldn't understand. Um, this is a good segue into what the future looks like, Joe. So if the scenario that we see today, based on your modeling, carries on, um, and you obviously came from the oil industry, we're seeing incredibly high oil prices you know over five dollars a gallon for gasoline yeah. in the u.s here in canada it's more than know. six in reno as of this well, morning having both the experience of 30 years of being in lithium space but also your early days of being in the oil and gas sector where do you what do you see happening what's the future going to look like for us here uh if things don't change and what has to happen to make things change is just more supply that's it or what's Maybe start with the first question, which is, what's the future going to look like other than just everybody that has a EV? I think the near-term future is just longer waits for EVs and a growing frustration that, gee, this isn't magical and you actually do have to have mining. And as long as it's responsible mining, the the U.S. government, the Canadian government, the powers that be should be doing everything they can to incent uh, responsible production of all the battery metals, not just lithium, but nickel, cobalt. Etc. So I, I I feel that it, it, you have to get it you have to get into a crisis mode to really get solutions, and I I th- I'd say that's where we're headed. I believe lithium will be in oversupply at some point. It just won't be in this decade or the first half of the next decade. Right. Because the other thing people are saying, like the EU, this is what I love about the EU. They say, well, we just want to recycle. Right. Well takes recycling of a lot of these to make an impact on the world and these ev batteries your tycan battery will probably go for 10 years and when it, when it's done you pull it out and you put it in a container and you do an energy storage life for four or five more years you're not going to have inventory to do meaningful recycling on end-of-life batteries until the 2030s and again another podcast guest i had on who's in the recycling said we're not going to we're not going to be 10% until it'd be 2030 at the earliest. Wow. So this whole circular economy thing is going to take almost 20 years to play out. Because people, that's what, oh, we won't have to mine at all. Well, <laughs> it takes, 
Nobody was even going to go after lithium initially in recycling when the lithium value was below 10,000 a ton because it didn't make economic sense. Right. Now, obviously, with higher lithium prices, it, it would make economic sense. But there'll come a day when lithium prices are, they're never going to be six or 8,000 again because the cost curve's going up as you mine less economically viable lithium deposits. But there is plenty of lithium around the world to, to do what we need to do. But the investment has to happen. Is there really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no shortage of lithium. There's, there's lith- in, in reasonable concentration? Because oh, I remember, yeah. no, I remember John it, Evans said there's lithium in the ocean, but it's obviously in well, low, okay. pretty low concentration. Yeah, yeah. So, well, there, but there, that has been, there was a company in the 90s called Pacific Lithium that had a, tried to have an operation in uh, New Zealand. And they actually proved they could do it. It just wasn't economic, or they, and they couldn't do it in a scale. It was more like a, yeah. a, a shot or a you know a science experiment. So you believe that uh, that what we're going to have to end up seeing is a uh, a, a sort of a, uh, an embracing of responsible mining by our our major governments, yeah. the European Union, the U.S. government, Canadian government, and start to just go. You know what, like. If we want to achieve these 2030, 2050 zero carbon targets, we got to start by getting the mines online. Yeah, and, and I think zero carbon is is a mythological beast. It's like your comment earlier. It's not it's not green. It's just greener. It's greener, greener. Yeah. yeah. So to, to 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 sort of wrap this up, Joe, um, you think that what we need to see happen is we've got to see. Administrations like Joe Biden's embrace mining, um, embrace responsible mining to bring these uh, lithium projects on faster. Because as you pointed out, ten years to get a a, a drilled, you know, a greenfield project, greenfield can project take, easily take ten years. Yeah. Both both of Lithium Americas, and I think John referenced this when he was on your show that uh, it was two thousand eight when one of the projects started, and you know, in about 10 when the other one did and it'll you know it's it's yeah. more than 10 years in those cases yeah and that was because you know the markets ebbed and flowed and investment ebbed and flowed and now the, the positive is you're starting to see i have talked to a lot of energy companies that want to be part of the transition and you're seeing them make investments but that's not gonna that doesn't cut down on the 10 years no. It just means, okay, we, we've, we've, we've got, started the path. Yeah, we've got more partners to work but the, with. But, but that's why when you see a, a big bank say, okay, lithium price is going to tank, lithium stocks tank, look at how many lithium stocks they buy the next week. Right. Yeah, yeah good point. <laughs> well, this has been a really great conversation. One more question I have. Do you think there'll be any technology that would disrupt the battery space to replace or be on par with lithium and thereby no it's not i mean so unless the periodic it. table changes <laughs> I, I do not i mean and also here's a, a a key point is that once you put the billions and billions of dollars into battery factories you get into the sunk cost mentality People aren't going to, the next big thing is, is going to be another overnight success after 20 years. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so you're, you're stuck with lithium for a good long while. But if you look at the periodic table, I mean, you're, you're stuck with lithium, you know, unless you're, unless you're a hydrogen advocate. But that has so many 
issues. Uh, yeah, for sure. We've had Ballard Power Systems trying to pull that off here in Vancouver for decades. Do, do you do you foresee big companies like Ford buying companies like Lithium Americas to ensure I, they have supply I chains? I think that uh, you will see a major auto company take the plunge at some point, but I think it's more likely that a major energy company will. And you've seen Rio Tinto get in the game now. Right. They they stayed out. Now they're uh, they just made an investment in in Nano One for for battery technology right. too. So they have a big project. Here's another point though that I'm glad I'm glad I brought that up. Rio Tinto, unlike the juniors, Rio Tinto is a major mining company. I just had them on my podcast. Yeah. And when they talked about how long it was going to take them to develop their project in Argentina, they're not talking about being fully on until 2030 ish. You get juniors that say, "Oh, we drilled two holes, and we're you know our market cap should be five billion," and they they rarely uh, turn out to be producers. Yeah, it's usually kind of a, a pump and dump scenario. So, yeah, yeah, uh, that's a good. That's a really good point. When you see a major miner get in and say, "Look, we've got we've got work to do. It's going to take time," and they they already have the skill sets involved. They have to learn more. Final point: technology in the lithium industry may change things so if we if there is a direct lithium extraction technology that works there are a lot of places with lithium brine where you don't have evaporation characteristics okay if you get a lithium brine operation like standard lithium is trying to do in arkansas with an existing bromine operation that if that extraction technology works on the smack over brine they can vet the economics in a special situation where those those projects have been running for 40 years in some cases or more. They prove that the extraction technology works on that, Brian, then the whole smack over reservoir could be uh, a lithium source. Okay. okay. And you've seen Coke industry. That's why Coke Industries, I think, invested in standard lithium. Okay. Yeah. So that could be one of the disrupting points there. Yeah, but it's yeah. gonna. I mean, that that's another. It's kind of like the frack. Well, what happened? The oil and gas yeah, industry. Yeah, fracking. exactly. But it, it it it'll take that five to ten years to play out. So there is no short fix here that leads to a crash of lithium prices to below where the cost curve is. If their thesis was correct, that's yeah. what I love the most. Is that if all that lapidolite was to come out in China, the cost curve would they it, the cost would be higher than what they're saying the global price is going to. So, yeah. wow. Well, this has been a great conversation, Joe. You have a podcast called the Global Lithium Podcast. You have uh, downloads in over 130 countries. 145. 145. Wow. Nice. And you have a very big following, over 15,000 people on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle again? At Global Lithium. At Global, at global Lithium. I keep it simple. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and this has been a simple conversation, uh, which, you know, it's been, I, I think it's been fascinating to unfold, see as, as things go. Uh, you're doing some work with uh, our friends over at Lithium Americas, so I know you're going over to uh, Ulit this this uh, yes, is I it am. tomorrow or today? It's okay. tomorrow. Okay, well enjoy your time on our West Coast. Thanks I for will. being in the podcast studios or Coastal Front. Uh, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah.